You may be seated. I just want to give a shout out um, to Mark and Sharon up there. Uh, they always do a phenomenal job. Why don't we give them a hand up there? I know they hate me that I just did that. But we had some issues with mice, and not like animals, but uh, computer mice. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and our mouse had died, and so we were scrambling for like 30 minutes trying to figure it out. And Sharon, you know, Mark says, Sharon healed it. Um, so now, yes, look at that. She's got the hands, I guess. Um, and it's just awesome, too. And give the, give the worship team a round of applause. We've got some new guys up here, and really just... It's been really fun to see everything grow and people just plugging in. And uh, so thank you for just, it's just so much fun to serve alongside of you. Um, well, I want you to imagine this morning, uh, if you were walking into work or walking into the grocery and some guy comes up to you and he says, hey, can I take your picture? But not just you. You see that guy over there? I don't really know him either, but I'm going to ask him to come over and I want to take a picture with the two of you hugging, Okay. So just, just put, let, let, let him put his arm around you just for a second. This is for art. What would you do? <laughs> I mean, for me, I'd be kind of like, well, well Kiefer's all nods over here. You know, he's all ready. Uh, I don't know if I would be ready. Um, but there's one artist who's actually doing exactly that. He's, his name's Richard Rinaldi. He's not really one for subtlety. Um, he's currently traveling throughout the nation, and he's asking this bizarre question. And he's getting some phenomenal works of art, these beautiful pictures. And here are a few of my favorites from his growing collection. The first one we have here is a woman, a white woman in her wedding dress, while the uh, African-American gentleman is in street clothes, and they're embracing as she's ready to open her champagne. Um, The second picture is a smaller elderly woman, um, so small that in order to be embraced, this taller younger gentleman had to get on his knees, and you just see them interlocking fingers looking at the camera. It's just super cute. And then uh, the third one here is this urban-dressed African-American young man, and he's resting his weight on the shoulder of this country white young man, Um, with the American flag in the background there showing diversity. And then the fourth picture, and this is my favorite, this tattooed 20-something who looks kind of jaded by the world a little bit, just his persona. And while holding up this tattoo-less little white girl with fresh eyes on a fresh world. What's, what's ahead of her? And there's, these pictures are so paradoxical. They, they, they capture these opposites that come together. And in one sense, they're kind of uncomfortable because we know the story behind it. These are strangers that are just getting together and doing these hugs. Um, and it seems also strange because they're so paradoxical. They're so different and they're coming together. And yet there's something so beautiful and moving about these pictures too, Right? Something that makes us wish that this was more than just a picture. But this was realized and reflected in real friendships, real relationships. But this isn't what we normally see in our world. We tend to divide. We tend to separate. We tend to push away. And sure, we can profess or we we can pose for a second and smile. We can fake a hug, you know, for a picture. But differences, I mean, real disputes... And sometimes just straight-up distance makes relationships seem almost impossible, doesn't it? And when I say relationships, I'm not talking about we've been dating for a couple weeks. We know the best things about each other, or we've been friends for a couple months, and um, we've been friends for a couple months, and, and we're just starting to get to know each other. 
but rather I'm talking about real friendships. Friendships in such a way that, you know, you can battle um, difficulties and disagreements and actually grow in intimacy and trust of one another. Those sorts of relationships, they're rare. Loving relationships that can honor differences, that can push through failures, that can live in sacrifice and still embrace. And the older I get, which isn't very old, (laughs) um, (laughs) some of you giggling back there, Um, the older I get, the, the more it seems like they're rarer and rarer to find, quite frankly. Rinaldi, he's called this current collection Touching Strangers, which is kind of weird also. Um, But some of us this morning, we can feel like we're just rubbing shoulders with strangers our whole lives, keeping everybody at arm's length except for moments of temporary transparency or even superficial intimacy, never having these genuine loving and lasting relationships, what we were designed for. Some of you this morning may actually be in the place that you feel like real relationships are hopeless. And hear me say this, they are. They are, unless, you know, you were hoping the unless would come, unless something bigger than us is at the center. Unless something, unless it's bigger than our feelings. You know, our culture says, oh, do you love someone? Do you feel strongly about them? It's got to be stronger than that. It's got to be stronger than romance. Romance fizzles. It's got to be stronger than commonalities or wants. Unless the gospel is at the center, our relationships will never last. They will always eventually fail. The gospel is our only hope for loving relationships. And I know that sounds audacious, but this morning we'll see why. There are three critical elements, I think, for a loving relationship to occur and to endure. And all three flow from the gospel. Through the gospel, here they are, just a quick snapshot on where we're heading. And through the gospel, we are made a new person. We are given a new perspective. And we are called to a new purpose. We're made a new person, given a new perspective, and called to a new purpose. Now, when we start talking about relationships, a lot of us have baggage, right? We're carrying it around. Some of us have trailers full. Um, and so as we come to this intense topic of relationships, and especially diving into 2 Corinthians We need the Holy Spirit to take God's word and dive it deep within our hearts so that it might trickle to all of our lives. So let's pray together, asking the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. Our Father, we come to you this morning. Um, We are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the church as well, that we can gather together. Relationships centered on the gospel. Um, That's why we're here this morning. It's because the gospel's brought us here. We have questions about who you are and, and who Jesus is. And I pray... Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that is present, Lord, make our eyes willing to see, our ears willing to hear, our hearts willing to embrace the truth of the gospel and our relationships and about our very selves. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. If you're new uh, here, we, we value God's Word. It's central to us. We believe it reveals God's design for life. And if you don't have a copy of, of the Bible, we have some free copies just on the opposite side of the divider on those tables there. Don't be shy. We're a super comfy congregation here, so you can go up and grab it. And if you grab it afterwards, you can hold it and keep it for yours. It's a gift to you. Um, now this morning, when we step into 2 Corinthians, we step into kind of a Facebook 
status that would be labeled best complicated um, between Paul and the Corinthian church. You know, the church in Corinth that wasn't the biggest fan of Paul's comments or his leadership for that matter. And if you think about it, this one church, the church in Corinth caused Paul more drama than all the other churches he planted probably combined. Um, For the church in Corinth, one letter didn't quite do it. So we're stepping into the second one where Paul is writing. um, And here, even though he's not in the wrong, he's pursuing reconciliation. He hasn't given up on the church in Corinth, and he doesn't want them to give up on him. Relationships, they're never easy, and the church isn't an exception. But the gospel is still the only hope for loving relationships. And this is where Paul leads out in our passage this morning. So look with me at verse 14, if you would, of chapter 5. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Why? What great idea. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. And if you jump down to verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Real relationships are possible, first and foremost, only because of the gospel. And the gospel says here first, you are made a new person in Christ. The gospel says you're made a new person. We hear the sounds of new life coming from the children's ministry and from around us this morning. But if relationships are going to be any different, we can't be putting the onus on other people. We first have to be made different. And we can't be content with just hearing that the gospel has happened in history. It has, but we must hear the gospel story and own it for ourselves personally. You see, there's a big jump of faith between saying, one has died for all, like Paul says, and then saying, therefore, all have died. That means you and I, in Christ, have died if we've proclaimed him as our Lord and Savior. You and me. Jesus not only lived and died and rose again, but embracing the gospel story means that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die, and he rose again so that we might enjoy and share new creation life. You're a whole new person in Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week, and this is why this is good news for us. It wasn't just good news back then. It's not just good news for when Jesus comes back, but it's good news now. It's hard to believe sometimes, but it's true. Through the gospel, God takes us dead and destructive people who are hell-bent, quite frankly, on isolation. And he makes us alive. He makes us right with him and makes us heaven-bent on community. The old person we were, the sin we used to own, we really were the walking dead, one of my favorite shows. And walking further and further from God until we were utterly lost. And the only person who could make this relationship right was God himself. We were too far gone, too blind, too set in our ways. We hear this relationally, right? Well, in another letter, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, his very life, 
We now are new people. We now live new life in Jesus. And it's so critical when we talk about relationships to talk about us as God proclaims that we are accepted by God because Jesus took all our sin upon himself. All the things we are, all the things that we have done that have separated us from God, in Christ, the doors have been opened for reconciliation with our Creator. In other words, God sent Christ after us. And in verse 21, we see the summation. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. All the wrongs we've committed against a holy God have been absorbed in the cross. And the new resurrection life has now been infused into us if we submit to Christ. Now we don't have to be afraid of punishment because Jesus endured our punishment for us. Now we don't have to try and earn God's acceptance because through the cross we hear all earning comes to an end with His cosmic cry of it is finished. All God longs for is for us to receive His acceptance and then to come and learn from Him. It's through the the gospel we are embraced by God. And to go from fighting for acceptance to resting and embrace, it changes us as a people. It should. It should. And here's where it really starts to get practical. Um, And what it does is it frees us from the fear of rejection. Some of us know that feeling very well. We felt the sting, and maybe you felt it more times than you'd care to admit, and you've promised yourself you will never feel that sting again. You'll do whatever you can. And what happens as we enter superficial relationships then, out of this fear of rejection. You see, when the gospel saves us from sin, it also saves us from these superficial relationships that stem from sin. Superficial relationships are those human relationships where we make other human beings in the place of God. We, we try to be everything everyone else wants us to be in order to be accepted. In those relationships where we can't say no, because saying no means that we, they, might no, they might no longer accept us. Hear me, those aren't relationships. Those are anything but relationships. That's slavery driven by fear that we ourselves put ourselves into. In that relationship, there's no room for being known. There's no room for being loved. No room for transparency, no genuine connection, and no rest. There's only an act, a play. And so many relationships are right there. And then we convince ourselves that that's the best we can do. Well, that's just not true. Now, some of us are on the other extreme of the spectrum where you make decisions to distance yourself from painful situations. You can't imagine saying yes to most anything. Because if you do, you're afraid as soon as people get to know you, they'll reject you. And that's not a relationship either. That's actually not even living. That's just slowly dying by yourself. I mean, we use solitary confinement in prisons for a reason. Because they're punishment. And yet out of fear of rejection, we think the answer is retreating to isolation. God doesn't want this for you. But rather, through Christ's death, he is inviting us to rest in him and the beauty of his acceptance. When the fear of rejection, when it rears its ugly head, follower of Jesus, hear this. God has promised, and he proclaims this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, echoing a passage in Deuteronomy, I will never leave you nor 
forsake you. We no longer need to fear the rejection of man when we've been given the acceptance of God. And this is how Paul can say, for the love of Christ controls me, not the fear of rejection. It's because in the gospel we're made a new person, an accepted person, and therefore a resilient person that's able to pursue pursue others in love even when it hurts, even when it hurts. What does this new person do in the face of rejection? Practically, it sounds like this. You would say, it would be nice if my boss liked me, but I'm still deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted, and complete in Christ. It would be nice if I could fix the refrigerator, but I'm still deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted, and complete in Christ. It would be nice if my complexion were clear or my neighbors would like me and invite me over for a meal, but I'm still deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted and complete in Christ. It's only after God has done his reconciling work here between he and us through Christ, giving us this sort of gospel resiliency as a new people that loving relationships are even possible. And after we see that we're made a new person, we then see the second gift of the gospel. The gospel gives us a new perspective. If our relationships have any hope of being loving and lasting, then we have to be given a new paradigm for even what love looks like between each other. We have to learn to see each other differently. And Paul says this in verse 16 from our passage this morning. What does he say? Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If we see who Jesus really is and what he's done for us, it must transform how we see others. How we see others. We all come with lenses through which we see our interactions with others. And these lenses, they always need gospel replacement. These lenses are formed by multiple factors, actually. They can be formed by our, the families that we were raised in. They can be formed by our culture and what media has perceived to us. Or they can be formed by our personalities. And it's these very lenses by which we come to interpret interactions and relationships. I remember when I went uh, for my first eye exam. Have any of you done these? Some of you with glasses, I know you have. Um, But my first one was actually when I got here in Kansas City. Um, I'd never had vision as a part of my plan. Actually, I didn't have insurance for quite a while. Um, Some of you also know what that's like, but not for very long, I guess, Um, anymore in our new world, um, supposedly. So with that, I, I went in. There's just some glitches, that's all, just some glitches. And I thought for sure, I thought for sure that my eyes were fine. I thought for sure that my eyes were fine. But I went in there because Allie needed to get her eyes checked. She uses contacts, and so I was like, well, it's free with our plan. I'll get my eyes checked. So I go in there, and they do the normal thing, right? He's like doing the different lenses, and he's like, how's this one? How's this one? How's this one? They always look better until they look worse, um, I guess. And so he's going through them. And I said, wow, that looks really good. Is that just the normal see-through lens? He goes, no, that's actually, you know, a lens for farsightedness. I go, oh, I thought I had fine vision. I'd always done the one eye sort of deal. What's the second to the bottom line? Yeah, I can read that. Nobody can read the bottom line. That's inhuman. 
Um, and so I thought for sure I was fine, but sure enough, I had a little bit of farsightedness that came from reading way too much in seminary, he said. My eyes were worn out, but my heart was willing. Um, that's really cheesy, isn't it? Um, but really, what, what I found out there is no matter how well you think you see, you can always see better. And that's the truth when we come to the paradigm of the gospel. You see, whatever has contributed to how you see the world, it must always be assessed by a new standard, the gospel paradigm. How God works in the world through Jesus has now become the first and the last word on how we see others. For the love of Christ controls us. That's what controls us. And for Paul, the gospel has such a dynamic influence that he says he can no longer, and I like the way the NIV captures this a little bit better, it says, regard anyone from a worldly point of view, that old point of view. One way we can tend to regard people according to these world standards is approaching people with a lens of suspicion. A lens of suspicion. Whenever someone, oh, pardon me, whenever someone is talking to you, there's a small gap. It's ever so slight, a small gap between what is said and what's actually heard. And it is through our lens, how we're choosing to interpret our interactions with people by which what we come to the ultimate meaning of what people are saying, okay? And some of us really wrestle through a lens of suspicion. Some of us really wrestle through a lens or with a lens of suspicion. What does that sound like? It sounds like sentences like this. When they said, thank you, do you think they were just trying to be nice? Or they just said, I love you, because that's, that's what they knew they, that I wanted to hear. It's not because they actually meant it. And so we consistently try to protect ourselves from potential pain by guarding against any emotion whatsoever and reading into every conversation with suspicion. We choose the filter to look through the past abuses we've experienced in relationships. We use our past failures to see ourselves and therefore interpret what others are saying. It's a key component of our worldview. Many times people say worldview is just an academic exercise. But our worldview and our self-view shades and also impacts how we interact with others and how we receive words in conversation. So if someone says to you, do you need some help? Do you just see that as a way of them manipulating you so they can get a favor from you later? If someone mistreats you, is it just a confirmation that they've hated you this whole time? If someone doesn't talk with you on that day, is it because they really didn't think that you were worth it? That's how we interpret this, sometimes through this lens of suspicion. Rather than, they had a lot on their plate. It wasn't personal. It's an exhausting and a miserable lens to live your life through. And this is the part of the old living. This isn't new living in Christ. But the gospel, it gives us a new lens. Instead of the lens of suspicion... We come with the lens of trust. The lens of trust. It's trusting, or potentially trusting, because we've seen that God has come and broken into our brokenness and died the death we deserve to die, and He did it because He loves us, not because He was trying to manipulate us. Real love we finally know through the gospel. And it's through this lens you can finally trust that God has it in control. You don't have to always be strategizing every time somebody has a conversation with you. You know, putting up your defense mechanisms. And as image bearers of this God who extends in love, 
then we see that people as image bearers are actually capable of trust and love and genuine affection through the cross of Christ. That doesn't mean you become like a Pollyanna and you become overly optimistic. But we do come with realism and compassion, knowing that only God died, not when actually knowing that God not only died for your sins, but the sins of the one you're having conversation with. You can't expect them to be perfect. But we can come and respond in grace through a lens of trust and grace that flows from the gospel. There will be times when new creations act like old creations, right? There are going to be times when people still hurt you in relationship. But the idea is that the gospel now frees us to rest in God's acceptance so that it doesn't capture all of our emotional energy. We now are freed because we are absolutely accepted unconditionally by God in Christ. The love of Christ controls us. It's our interpretive lens, not suspicion. This can be very hard depending on where you are in your walk and what your family dynamics are. Some of our lenses are a little more scratched than others. So in the gospel, we're made not only a new person to free us from the fear of rejection and now resting in God's acceptance, but in the gospel, rather than seeing others through a lens of suspicion, we come with a lens of grace and trust through the gospel that enables loving and flourishing relationships. It's as a new person with a new perspective that we come to the final beautiful gift of the gospel and that the gospel calls us to a new purpose, a new purpose. If we're ever going to have loving relationships and, and have to be, they, they have to have a different end than ourselves. It can't, it can't be about self-fulfillment. It can't be about comfort. It can't be about it feels good. It, it, can't, be, it can't be about self um, Uh, making ourselves in a greater condition. Rather, it has to be greater than all of these. And that's the only reason Paul can be so tenacious in pursuing reconciliation with the Corinthian church. This is the beauty of this new life, is that God's not merely saved us from our past destructive lives, but he's graciously called us to be participants in spreading this reconciliation. Look at verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us through us. An ambassador, as many of you know, is is someone who's sent as a representative to a foreign country. They're stationed there temporarily, um, negotiating in all the authority of his or her country of origin. So when we're called ambassadors for Christ, we're called to be representatives of God's new king, his new kingdom, and his new world order. Given the message of reconciliation, to proclaim to a dead and dying world. We've been given good news, folks. Not good advice. Not merely good techniques. Not a a pat on the back that says good job. But good news. And the very gospel that has defined us in our new perspective has now become the message we share with others. The hard truth is that 
some of us in here are really good at the message of rejection. Not necessarily the message of reconciliation, but the message of rejection. You know that message. We've all felt it. It's the disgusted look of disapproval. It's the outburst of anger when we don't get our way. It's sarcasm. That's a secret. Secret in there. Sarcasm at coworkers' ideas, shelling out these belittling questions when we're in the middle of an argument. It's so easy to begin to slump back into communicating the message of rejection with those around us. But God has called us to carry the message of reconciliation. We're now healers, not destroyers. And it's here that we become the righteousness of God in a very different sense that we normally think of. Becoming the righteousness of God is slightly different than being declared the righteousness of God, as we saw last week. As ambassadors and becoming the very rightness of God, we are agents of God's kingdom and his right order in the midst of a chaotic and broken world. We're making relationships right with God and with one another. God making his appeal through us. And this appeal, this appeal is both vertical and horizontal. Apparently the horizontal is quite a far jump to make there. Um, But it's both vertical and horizontal. And in vertical, what I mean is people being reconciled to God the Father through Christ the Son while there's still time. We see everyone as a potential new creation in Christ. And so we proclaim the gospel message of reconciliation to all we meet. This is the Great Commission. This is what Jesus tells his disciples before he takes off or sins, you know. Um, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And now... It's because we are accepted unconditionally by God in Christ, we can speak the truth of the message of reconciliation without fear of rejection. You see how this is intertwined. And who God has now recreated us to be empowers us to live out the purpose he's called us to. Now I know for some of us, we can overcomplicate what it means to tell the gospel message. So I wanted to share just a couple practical steps that I found helpful and my journey, and they come from Pastor Tim Keller. Um, I think these are really helpful. So first, let people around you know you're a Christian. And I don't mean in some weird way, like, Hi, I'm Gabe, I'm a Christian. Ah, I don't know how to hide it. Um, but in, you know, in an unnatural, normal way, it usually comes out in conversation when people are asking you about your life. Well, for me, it's very easy, and it's kind of a cop-out. It's hard for me to give you advice, because people say, What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're one of those. Um, Kill the fun. (laughs) Here he comes. Um, 